Welcome to Life Matters. Great to be with you. We're rallying the pro-life movement to fulfill its calling. I'm Ed Martin. I'm here with Jordan Henry. Uh, We work for the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, and we are excited to be together and talking about this in Life Matters, this podcast. Uh, Our tagline is rallying the pro-life movement to fulfill fulfill its calling. Part of that is figuring out where we are, uh, understanding what's happening in our communities, understanding what's happening in the pro-life movement, and understanding what's happened in our history. So we're excited today to spend our uh, time together on this episode talking about what's the past been so that we know where we are at this moment and what's going to happen in the future. So uh, welcome back. Uh, Jordan, how are you today? Hey, doing excellent, Ed, and I'm very uh, happy to be going through uh, today's topic, discussing some of the judicial history of abortion in America. I think a lot of people, you know, we hear Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade, and maybe right. if you're really in tune with the news, then you know about maybe Casey and Dovey Bolton yeah, and all of that right. sort of thing. But there is just so much more to it than that, and so much that's important that's going to be very critical as we talk about what's going to happen next on the Supreme Court with the current cases that are before the court. And so I think that kind of at least just a broad level overview of some of these major court cases is going to be very important for pro-life activists to be able to know what has happened and what we can expect going forward in the coming months. Well, and you know, a lot, you could spend uh, five um, history courses. You could spend probably ten uh, law school courses, you know, public policy courses on the history of of Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton and all these cases. The history of abortion. There are lots of books written on that, and we can we'll reference some of those. Uh, but for now, what we're trying to do, you know, this this is not this podcast is not about legislation, what's past or pending, what's coming down the line. That There'll be other podcasts about that. We'll have experts on those subjects. This is about the judicial history, the case history, a broad stroke. So when you're thinking, okay, what is the Supreme Court decision in June of 2022, the Dobbs case? How does that fit into this arc? What does it mean? And I think that's what we hope to cover. And again, um, not exhaustive, right? Again, you could, there are lots of cases. Sometimes a case will be, um, interesting for a lawyer to look at because it gets denied, right? It doesn't actually get to the Supreme Court, which means something that Supreme Court doesn't look at it. But that's not what we're doing. We're going to look at, uh, uh, we're going to look at what's happened. There'll be not a consistent line through it. In some ways it's inconsistent, but that's part of the story. So, uh, you know, first Jordan, uh, Roe v. Wade, Dovey Bolton's before your time, literally, I was just a couple years old, but you know, what's your impression of the knowledge of people on these on these cases, the judicial cases? Well, of course, I would say that the majority of people just know that Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in America, which is in itself not entirely accurate because what had been the case before Roe is that the decision on whether or not abortion should be legal or the extent to which it should be regulated was left up to the individual states. Right. And Roe was what stepped in, and I don't want to get ahead of us in terms of mm-hmm. the cases that we're discussing, it changed that and said, no, there is a constitutional right to abortion, but not an absolute right, and there's a lot of exceptions and, you know, how far along is a pregnancy and all that sort of stuff. Really, what I was the most struck by as we were preparing for this episode was actually just how much the court has changed 
people say, oh, Roe is settled law. It's the law of the land and all that sort of thing. But that is so untrue. It seems like every other year the court is coming up with, oh, well, actually this restriction is okay, but no, never mind. You can't have that restriction. And, you know, strict scrutiny standard. And then there is a undue burden standard. And the court has changed its mind on abortion so many times, far more times than we could go into just in this podcast. But it's incredible to me. It's yeah. incredible to me how inconsistent they've been. Well, and you know, there's a number of uh, books that I, I will uh, reference, and and one of them, you know, Jordan has heard me talk about a lot. It's called "Abuse of Discretion" by Clark Forsyth. And one of the reasons I like that so much is it just came out a few years ago, and he was able to finally, after decades of waiting, get the uh, memos from the Supreme Court that are in the public record now, and look at what happened back and forth. And here's just what I want. That's on Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. And before we get back and go a little historical and go before those those two cases i just want to say the reality is cases and decisions are made by people by judges by people who have clerks uh, who are influencing what they're doing when you look closely at this you see that there's an influence of individuals that sometimes you're just like how did that person get in there and you read Clark Forsyth's book abuse of discretion you see that with these memos so these are human beings making the decisions it's a reason why when you talk about what the cases and what the case law should be the constitution if it's a movable feast if it's whatever somebody thinks the last time they cover it they think about it they come up with an idea then it can be anything that the person in charge will do as opposed to something that has uh has roots in uh, the natural law and in in uh, how we are as human beings so having said that and set that up and we'll come back to that let's talk a little bit about uh, some of these cases. You know, the, the most um, important case other, in a way other than Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, those are, Do, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton are the two uh, uh, Supreme Court cases on abortion. But it was about eight years before that in 1965 when there was a case called Griswold v. Connecticut. And this is where the first right to privacy was described and it later became where the justices looked uh, to to find a right to abortion. But the right to privacy was uh, uh, by the Supreme Court, again, by a seven to two margin. And, and Griswold had to do with a married couple uh, that were in, and Connecticut had a law that banned contraceptives. It's hard to go back in time for people, but uh, in, in America in the 1960s, there were bans in many states on contraceptives being used, that marriage was uh, was described as being for people to get married to have a family, and contraceptives was a disruptive of that, and so they banned them. The, poli the, the policy was, uh, and as to a married couple, uh, the, the, the state ban was struck down by the Supreme Court, and the way they did it was to say, Married couples had a right to privacy, and they sort of made it up. It was uh, it was this penumbra, this idea that somehow they could read into this uh, uh, case. And uh, I don't know if you did you uh, you're not uh, Jordan Henry's not a lawyer. I happen to be a lawyer too. But Jordan, had you even heard of Griswold much before this? Before we're getting ready for this podcast? Yeah, I was vaguely aware of it. I wasn't really privy to just how foundational it was to Roe because we know that that standard of the right to privacy within the constitution is such an important part of the reasoning behind Roe. Uh, so Griswold was really, really influential, not necessarily because of the whole contraceptive thing and the matters of the case itself, but exactly. establishing that right to privacy set up for Roe, which came down the pike about eight years later. 
And so in that sense, it was really, really foundational. Well, and here's an interesting thing. Most people don't think, or maybe they don't think much often of Connecticut. Connecticut was one of the earliest states to pass a ban on abortion. It was at the time, what you'd say is a more conservative state. And as we just alluded to, states could take up what they wanted to uh, at the state level, and they had a lot of freedom. If you went to Connecticut, they had a ban on abortion, they had a ban on uh, contraception. And uh, and so the idea that Connecticut would have this conservative um, uh, law, looks conservative to us, was not, not a surprise in that context. Also interesting to note, I often point to people that in the business of challenging statutes, you often find pros. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, Rosa Parks, for example, was someone who was trained as a as a as an uh, to be a, a protester. She had gone to training. She had been an activist, and that's fine, right? It's nothing wrong with that. Connecticut in the Griswold case, it was uh, they were preparing that challenge. They were looking for a way to to challenge that case. And for folks that what I'm telling people here is. You, you can't just hope that the truth comes down. You got to work for it in terms of framing the arguments. Uh, another, the late uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who served for so many years on the court, was instrumental in the strategies that pushed forward far left uh, ideology in the courts before she got on the bench. So um, so that's Griswold. I, what, what else do we want to talk about with Griswold, Jordan? Anything to add to that? Well, I, I think that one thing that I found compelling about that case is, again, just the slippery slope and all of the hypocrisy that the court has shown because of course Griswold was decided in 1965 but that only applied to married couples so yeah. that's so interesting for us today to look back on that and to say Good point. the supreme court was willing to say that you can't ban contraceptives but only for married couples and then that changed just a few years later. So Griswold happened and then they revisited that a few years later and opened that up to um, anyone, not restricted that to married couples. And then you have Roe. So, I mean, you can say what you want about contraceptives and, and personal thoughts on that, but just the way that the court shifts yeah. over time, people right. act like the Supreme Court is just stalwart and it's never changing, but that's not true at all, which I think is a great setup for Roe. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, well, and, and it's funny now, and I hope uh, if you're listening to this, you know, we're, we're walking our way through this because we want to be learning as we go. And hopefully you are too. And, and if you have questions and comments for us, uh, we, you know, we, we'd love to get them through email and through our website, phyllisschlafly.com. But uh, you make a great point because right now the left is ramping up to say, stare decisis. Stare decisis is the doctrine of the law that says, a judicial decision should be deferred to. You know, you should say, well, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. We shouldn't change it. If you look back at the Supreme Court, there's constantly review of laws to adjust what has happened. And, and I, I would say not adjust the law, to, but make clear what the law is. As in this case, Griswold, they come up with a right to privacy that hadn't existed before. If they wanted a right to privacy in the Constitution, they could have put a right to privacy. They could have said that. Or you could say, well, the right to the protection against search and seizure is a mm -hmm. right to privacy, right? So where do you derive that protection? So let's let's move off of uh, uh, Griswold and v. Connecticut, 1965. You come up to 1973. The decision in Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, two companion cases, we'll get to them in a minute, but let me explain to you. The cases were actually argued in 1971, as I recall, I'm, I'm trying to look at my notes, but it was initially argued and then it was re-argued. In other words, it was before the court for almost two plus years. It's very uncommon. 
And part of that was because there was a couple of vacancies on the court and the uh, Chief Justice Berger was, uh, at least the way you read the notes on it, he was waiting to get a fuller court. And so they re-argued the case. And so, uh, Jordan, why don't you, if, if you can, walk us through the facts of the two cases? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a few major things that people need to know about Roe v. Wade. Some we've already covered, but we also want to talk about um, the foundation for that case. Uh, the foundation for that case was a woman uh, who was named Jane Roe, but whose actual name was Norma McCorvey. Uh, and she was represented represented by uh, Sarah Weddington and another lawyer. I forget the other one's name. Uh, but, you know, a, a feminist at the time, Phyllis Schlafly debated Sarah Weddington quite a few times uh, subsequent to this decision uh, on the abortion issue. Um, but what's interesting and what you're not going to hear very often is that Norma McCorvey uh, later denounced the decision, became right. pro-life and right. completely changed her life around, became uh, a pro-life activist. And likewise, in the companion case, Doe v. Bolton, I, I knew about Norma McCorvey before this, but I did not know before starting to do some research for this episode that Mary Doe, whose real name was Sandra Kano, uh, in the Doe v. Bolton decision that accompanied Roe v. Wade uh, was also pro-life. And she was actually pro-life, she claimed, at least. Uh, you know, we'll give benefit of the doubt, however. But um, she claimed at the time that she was pro-life and that her attorney had deceived her and that she wasn't privy to all that was going on with this lawsuit. And she did not agree with the decision that was allegedly found in her favor uh, and she actually sued in 2003 to reopen the case because she claimed that she was deceived at the time and wasn't able to actually uh, give informed consent to this case that was filed on her behalf. Right, of course, right. you know, as an attorney, Ed, that you have to have standing in order to be able to sue uh, and have a case go before the Supreme Court. So it's this strange situation. The same thing happened with Norma McCorvey, where it doesn't start with someone having a problem and then them going to the courts. The way that these cases actually started was you have activist uh, lawyers who are trying to hunt for the perfect person who they can say is their client in order to bring these cases before the court. Right. They thought Norma McCorvey was going to be the perfect vehicle for them to achieve their own interests. Norma McCorvey, she was pregnant at the time that the suit was filed, but the baby was born long before the case right. ended right. up being decided. And yeah. did, did Norma's lawyers care? No, they didn't care because yeah. it wasn't ever about Norma to them. To them, it was all about getting that right to abortion in the constitution, according to the courts. Well, and, and Jordan, in the, in the notes on the court, again, to drive home how important personnel is, you know, the famous Richard Vagary, uh, his quote is personnel is policy. If you don't think it matters who the judges are, you look inside, there was an argument that the cases should be moot because you're arguing mm -hmm. about abortion, right. but you can't have an abortion. So, you know, this is the old standing question of, you know, right. who's how can you be there saying, I, I want to have an abortion, but you're not you can't have an abortion. And, and and in some ways you'd look at it and say, huh, they were looking for a way to use this judicial case, these two cases to make uh, to make judgment. Now, a couple of things you need to know established by Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton in 1973, there had been for about 50 years, a little bit less than that, 
a, a, a sense of the court, the Supreme Court, that there was levels of judicial scrutiny. Now, if your eyes glaze over and you say, what does that mean? It, what it means is the court was getting bureaucratized. The bureaucracy was growing. It happened in the period of the FDR court. And they started to say, well, some things that come to the court will have a high level where we have to look hard at it. Some will be a medium level and some will be a low level where we just defer to what the law says. And in this case, so the terms become that you need to know that the one in this case is, uh, uh, is strict scrutiny which is the highest level of scrutiny that would look at a law. So Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton have these laws, and we could go, I guess, could go into the details a little bit more. But um, for the purposes of the court, they came out and said, when you get a, a law like this, we think it's such an important right, the right to privacy extended to abortion, that you're, we're going to make the court look at this in a very specific way. And let me walk through this. A strict scrutiny, it makes sure that you have to have a compelling state interest all right, a reason to ban it. The state has to make an argument. The reason to ban it in this case, it has to be narrowly tailored and it has to be the least restrictive means. So if you think about those and as the cases came out in the future, came down in the future, they, they made it very difficult to, to or they made a lot of ways that the court could say, oh, yeah, that wasn't the least restrictive way to to accomplish this interest that you had. And this really became, I think, the place where we can say our Supreme Court really became activist because they're using this framework to further an agenda uh, on this issue of the right to privacy and abortion. And, and the cases for the last decades, a series of decades, have been wound up in how do we analyze what a compelling interest is? Is it compelling interest enough that uh, this impact, can you make a compelling interest argument over uh, economic impact? All these kinds of, what is the level of narrowly tailored? Is it narrowly tailored? You can't, can't say ban it. We have to say ban it with this exception. Is that what we have to do? All these things became complicated and frankly created an industry around that. So, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, but strict scrutiny standard, that is reserved only for the highest rights, the most foundational rights. Correct. Well said. Yeah, well said. That we have as Americans. Right. So they, they afforded to abortion the highest standard, you know, on par with what would that be like, you know, free speech, free yep. exercise of religion. They right. thought abortion was on the same level as that. Right. And you can tell even just a great point and great way to say it. You can tell when you say that, you say, well, I'm not going to mess with that too much. Right. We don't want to mm -hmm. limit our free speech. Uh, if we limit our free speech, it will be limited. What limitations on free speech will be have to be really narrowly tailored. Right. Yelling fire in a crowded theater. Can't do that. But after that, Katie, Bar so you're, you're well said. It's important. Now, the other part of this that I think is so important, and it's going to be important for Dobbs. We're talking Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton still. When you looked inside the notes of the clerks in the Supreme Court in 1972 and three, and this is what Clark Forsyth did in his book, um, uh, Abuse of Discretion. I often forget the name of that. He found that one of the things that they just made up was the trimester framework. They, they, there was nobody that had a real argument because, and, and you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe you're, you're a better layman uh, talking than I am, Jordan. You want to describe what the trimester framework means to normal people instead of me? I'm starting to get into legalese. I can feel it. Well, I, I think that a lot of people think that the whole trimester uh, framework for pregnancy was established by physicians. We, we think because doctors talk about it so much, oh, you're in your first trimester, second trimester, third trimester. 
uh, we think that that came from doctors. But what shocks people is finding out that the trimester system was invented as a tool of the judiciary specifically for this case of Roe v. Wade. It was not widely used before this time. It was established by judges, not by doctors. It was established by judges. So, you know, it's it's mind-blowing, really. Well, and and so, and what the framework became was a way to say, you, you know, you're not allowed to do anything in the first trimester. Right. The, back to the strict scrutiny. Well, you, you can't narrowly, it's too important in the first trimester to have this right to privacy for abortion. Therefore, you really can't do anything in there. And so then the litigation became, well, what am I allowed to do in the second trimester and third trimester is partial birth abortion, which is in the third trimester. Can you limit that? Well, and over time, the court said, yes, you can, in the third trimester, you can limit things. But think about sort of arguing past the sale. Someone says in your first trimester, that's when you can't do anything. What's it's almost like they created a way to stop the argument. And, 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 you know, Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia used to, um, used to say about broadly about topics like this, when you took away from the people, the chance to argue about the politics of many issues, not just this one, you took something very important out of our, our, our nation. And that's what the trimester, I really don't think anyone can uh, over uh, overestimate the power of the trimester framework, because in the seventies, when it happened, you couldn't look at an ultrasound. You, you, you know, you, maybe some of the big hospitals you could, but you, you couldn't do it like you do now. And by the time you get into the 1990s, you have ultrasounds. Then by the time you get into 2000s, you have 3D ultrasounds. I mean, it's an extraordinary change to have ultrasound availability because suddenly the trimester thing doesn't make sense. Is that thing I'm looking at on the last day of the trimester, not a baby, and the day after it's a baby? Well, you can see it's the same thing before and after. I think that was a huge... Um, a huge problem that almost wasn't understood until 30 or 40 years later. Yeah. So to recap, basically to get down these cases. So Roe v. Wade did a couple of things. First of all, it found that there was a right to abortion under the auspices of right to privacy in the U.S. Constitution for the first time, which enabled the federal government to um, have an interest in that and establish and struck down state laws that limited abortion. So that's one thing it did. Strict scrutiny standard was established, which, as we talked about, put abortion on the same level of a constitutional right as things like freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, things of that nature. Third thing, trimester framework was established out of thin air without uh, medical backing to back that up at all. This was a judicial creation, not something that was made. Uh, by doctors. Uh, so that was some of the key takeaways from Roe v. Wade. One other thing to add with Doe v. Bolton that's separate from Roe v. Wade, what Doe v. Bolton did, yeah, uh, with, the decision important. was released the same day as Roe. And um, what that did was it created a very loose definition Correct. of what the health of the mother means. Right. So when we think of health of the mother, we think, you know, death or great bodily harm. But what was established in the Dovey Bolton case was that the health of the mother can include, quote, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age. Yeah. So all of that stuff, if you think that you're going to be psychologically harmed by having a child, then you are entitled to an abortion is yeah. what Dovey Bolton said. So those are the key takeaways yep. to remember for those two cases.
And I want to put a, uh, an exclamation point on what Jordan just said. And, and you're listening to Life Matters, our podcast. We're rallying the pro-life movement to fulfill its calling and understanding what's going on. If you, if you listen to what Jordan just said, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, 1973, they created these couple of things, right? By the time you get to today, these are the center of the entire debate, health of the mother. If you try to speak about this issue, they pay all well, the health of the mother and health of the mother is any, as you say, any emotional, psychological health of the mother. Trimester, the framework, we're talking about the heartbeat bills and things that have to do with when does life begin? The trimester was the framework made up was what was framing it. And then in terms of the legal fight, strict scrutiny, which as, as we, we talked about reveals the preference to put the right to privacy, which doesn't exist in, in, the, in the way it's asserted, on the level with our other rights. Um, so again, we're trying to look at the cases and we're encouraging you to learn uh, about these cases to understand the judicial sort of history as well as the arc because we're coming up to a major judicial moment, a judicial decision uh, next uh, June or maybe July 1st. Uh, so let's, uh, we'll take a break. It's a Life Matters, the podcast that is rallying the pro-life movement to fulfill its calling. Be right back. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin and Jordan Henry. It's Life Matters. We're rallying the pro-life movement to fulfill its calling. As we turn to some more cases, and you know, remember, we're we're not doing an exhaustive uh, uh, examination of all the judicial decisions, but we're saying, hey, with regard to abortion, where are we? What's coming up uh, in the Dobbs case in the in the summer? What is going to mean? How's it going to fit together? And we hope we're helping uh, with this effort. We're about to talk about Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 1992 case, and as we do. I want to remind people, um, Jordan and I have talked uh, offline about how one takeaway from this discussion, I hope you're listening, is the Supreme Court has kind of made it up, whether it's the trimester framework, whether it's scrutiny levels, they've kind of made up uh, things to decide how to uh, make laws uh, fit. And that's dangerous, right? It, it feels off. Um, but when the people now will say, oh, don't change what's settled law, you say, wait a second, that's a lot of, there's been a lot of changes. Well, here's the, here's the, here's a quote from Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the Pennsylvania case, it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the, the, the main decision was written by Justice Kennedy, who people thought was a conservative and a Republican appointee. He wrote this. This is his quote. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe and of the mystery of human life. Now, this quote has been critiqued and mocked and everything else for, for decades now. At the heart of liberty is the right to define. You can define whatever you want. You can define yourself. You can define the universe, all that. Forget debating it. I, I, what I want to point to is uh, right now is the, the, the craziness that we have a, a body, a Supreme Court body that can decide out of whole cloth things that they want to do and expect that the land is ruled by it. Uh, ruled by their pronouncements. Um, it's not what our founders intended. And it, it, it is comical sometimes. Like, I don't even know what that means. You could do a philosophy course on that quote, but it also is detrimental. Um, and uh, Jordan, what does that quote mean? Can you explain it? Five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, it basically means truth is relative. What does human life mean? That's right. Everyone can decide for themselves. If you don't think that an unborn child is a human, well, then you can do what you want with that. If you don't think that 
someone else is not human, what do you do with that? Right. Exactly. It's a slippery slope, a very slippery slope. Right. But it does point to if you want to centralize power in certain bodies, make it so the bodies are the ones that those people and that group can decide what things mean, right? And and create these meanings. So, all right, let's go to Planned Parenthood v. Casey, uh, a 1992 case. Dropping one footnote, Casey in this was the governor of Pennsylvania who was one of the last pro-life Democrats uh, in America, very prominent. In 1996, he was the governor of Pennsylvania still, uh, Bob Casey is his name, and he was blocked, he's now deceased, but he was blocked from speaking at the Democrat National Convention by then President Bill Clinton because he was pro-life. And so anyway, so he he had signed provisions that were limiting abortion. And uh, Jordan, I know we have some notes of, of, of these, so why don't you walk us through what Parenthood Casey, some of the key provisions are. So Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act of 1982 was what was under review with this uh, with this uh, with this case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, And there were five positions that were particularly at issue uh, in that Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act. Uh, Things that a lot of us would think are common sense, like uh, informed consent. A doctor must get a woman's permission to perform the abortion after the doctor has given factual medical information about what an abortion procedure is and what some of the effects of that abortion might be. A lot of us think, well, then that makes sense. Parental consent. Minors must get one parent's permission, at least one parent's permission, uh, before having an abortion. Well, if they're a minor, they should be getting their parent's permission before having a major medical procedure done. Makes sense, right? Uh, reporting requirements. Uh, facilities performing abortions have to keep records on the abortions that they perform. <laughs> you would expect that if this is a medical procedure, they're going to keep records, right? It makes right, sense. Right. So just things like that are what were at issue in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, because Planned Parenthood didn't like the idea of informed consent for women who are uh, considering abortion. They didn't like parental consent. They didn't like having to keep records and things like that, that almost any of us would think are just standard operating procedure for any kind of a, I'll use the term medical facility loosely, uh, like, like Planned Parenthood. So that is why they sued, uh, Casey in this case, because they didn't like those very common sense things. Right. Uh, and so the effect of that was essentially to affirm some of Roe v. Wade, but to peel some of it back in a very, very interesting mix of ways. Well, and one thing to say about this, which again gets down into the legal weeds a bit or the judicial weeds, it was a plurality opinion, right? which means there was not a majority for the whole decision. They had to sort of cobble this together. I mentioned back when I referred to Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, the, argu- the, the, case was, the cases were actually re-argued because the chief justice didn't want to have a kind of cobbled together uh, issue like Planned Parenthood v. Casey because it's unclear judicially. So you know, uh, Jordan, a couple of the a couple of the key takeaways: the previous trimester framework, which said you know trimesters, three months, three months, three months for pregnancy, where you we had to have a certain level of deference in each of those. Well, that was out, sort of replaced by viability. But but what did that mean? I mean, that was one of the, immediately one of the questions everybody started to say was, what do we do with viability? How do we define viability? Who's the, who's the one that gets to define viability? Uh, and, and how do we go about that? I, to me, that's the one on Planned Parenthood v. Casey that is the hardest uh, to understand how, who came up with that? I mean, who, you know, what, what, what was that? What, who was thinking that that, and what we don't know is were they, um, 
was at a deal to get the uh, to get something done, you know, to make the thing go forward. Um, now, also strict scrutiny was sort of replaced with a new undue burden standard. Again, what happened immediately was lots of cases litigating. What does that mean? How do we uh, figure out what that means? When you read the coverage of this, uh, Jordan, you you almost sounded like you thought it was a mixed decision. What, what you know that there were some things that did that that got rolled but pulled back. But how do you see that? I think a lot of people think that. Um, but uh, in other ways, I think it enshrined Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. um, uh, in a way that you couldn't undo. People thought it might be undone by Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Well, you had 20 years there from 1973 to 1992 where you've got case after case after case uh, that dealt with different state laws that regulated abortion. Common sense stuff. And sometimes the restrictions were upheld and sometimes they weren't for 20 years on this strict scrutiny standard and within this trimester framework. So what they did in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, what it seems like to me is they said, uh, well, they were trying to save face. They said, well, we uphold the essential holding of Roe, basically that there is some sort of a right to abortion uh, prior to viability and states can restrict abortion post viability with exceptions for life and health yep. and all That's that sort it. of stuff it comes again. But yep. Even though they claimed that they were upholding the essential holdings of Roe, they replaced some of the most key foundational aspects of Roe, uh, to save face. Yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I think at the time, most conservatives thought, well, here, we're going to finally reverse this. We have a more conservative court. And they thought, and so as you point out, they couldn't get that far. Uh, By the way, I'll drop a footnote in this conversation to point out that uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, who the late Phyllis Schlafly, who both you and I worked with, uh, opposed. She was a Republican from Arizona precisely because uh, Phyllis didn't trust her on this issue, among others. It turns out that was right. Uh, But you end up with this hodgepodge decision uh, where they're basically... Um, I think when I read it, I think they wanted the, the culture, they wanted to be able to say they upheld it, but they had to, you know, sort of hodgepodge some mm-hmm. things to pull it back. Um, it was a major disappointment. I could tell people, uh, that maybe younger didn't know or weren't paying attention. Many of us thought this was the case, right. That was going to reverse right. uh, Roe v. Wade and it, bam, it went against them. And it was very, very disheartening. Um, and that it was such a divided, a sloppy decision in a way what made it even worse. Uh, made it even more problematic. Um, but it also changed back to one thing, the trimester thing. It didn't remove it, but it's, it talked about viability and that began the viability question, which again is another, who, who defines viability? Is it the doctor that's going to tell you? Well, that's changed, right? You could, if you were a baby born at, uh, uh, at 28 weeks, 50 years ago, you had no viability. Well, today you have great viability, right? I'm whatever. There's lots of, I'm not, I'm not a, a doctor on that. Um, but what it does make you realize when you look at Planned Parenthood uh, v. Casey is, again, the court's been moving the goalposts, been changing the law on abortion um, a number of times. Yeah, yeah. And an interesting note on viability, and we can certainly talk about this more at some other time, but it is so transitory. Viability, essentially what they held is that the unborn child has protections starting whenever that child can survive outside of his or her mother's womb. That's viability. If it's viable, if it's able to live outside of the mother's womb, then that's when it has validity. Human life, essentially, they said, 
might start sometime around the time that a child can exist outside the mother's womb. But what does that mean exactly? Right. Because medical advancements have happened within the last 30 years since this decision has taken place, which has made it so that babies who are uh, younger and younger and younger in terms of the, how far along the pregnancy is, um, have been able to survive outside the womb. So has the definition of life changed based on medical science? And even take, for instance, a child here in the United States that's born prematurely uh, has a much better chance of surviving than in some third world country where the medical technology isn't there. So right. are children that are born younger in America, are they considered more valuable? Are they Is their human life more valuable than that of someone in a third world country? That, that's what the Supreme Court is saying. Right. So first they invent a trimester system out of thin air with no medical advice. And then they establish this viability standard, which has loopholes in it a mile wide. It's sad to see the Supreme Court try to define what life is. Well, and not only loopholes, to your point, uh, but inconsistencies that make it right. so that there's it's not loopholes that you could work your way through. It's right. gaps. Right. It's yeah. gaps that people and babies fall into. And, uh, and so, you know, again, the, the health of the mother is is still a factor where that that is over time has become the the major way that people can say well the health of a mother it's not about whether she die in, in if there was a, a pregnancy a, a birth but it's what how are all kinds of other measures of health which is another you know a factor in 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 modern uh, day uh, uh, modern life right what is health and and as big as as wide as can be um, Jordan we we need to kind of uh, keep ourselves limited here we might we promised our our podcast listeners we would not uh, go on too long so. Um, let me finish and, and mention a couple of cases. Uh, partial birth abortion. In the framework after uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the question was, could you ban abortion, especially partial birth? And there was a horrendous procedure, partial birth, which I even hate thinking about. It makes me so upset. Um, but And that, that case, the famous case there is uh, Carhartt, uh, Gonzalez v. Carhartt, Gonzalez v. Planned Parenthood. But Carhartt, I think Carhartt might have been the Nebraska attorney general. And that was a, a partial birth abortion act that banned that act. And that was upheld, five to four, but upheld uh, that you could limit uh, partial birth abortion. I think many of our listeners have heard that. I think that was 2005 or six in that period. Anything to add on that one, Jordan? No, no. I think that is an important case for people to uh, pay attention to as we look at the framework the timeline of abortion in America. And the last one, just to mention for one second, and, and uh, Jordan, remind me the laws, the timing of the laws that passed on this one. This is the, the um, Hellerstedt. Is th this is the Texas case on this? Yeah, that's right. There was a law in Texas, another law dealing with uh, restrictions on abortion. Uh, and Texas essentially said uh, in this law that you have to, as a doctor, if you want to perform abortions, you have to have admitting privileges into a hospital uh, within a 30 mile radius of where you perform that abortion. Uh, because, of course, you want someone who is performing a medical procedure like this to be able to get a woman to the facilities where she can get the care that she needs if uh, there should be complications, which Planned Parenthood doesn't want you to know this, but there are definite, very strong risks of complications. So another uh, perfectly legitimate uh, law meant to defend women, to protect women who are susceptible to having medical complications. Uh, and in that case, 
um, the Supreme Court in 2016 struck down that perfectly reasonable admitting privileges requirement in Texas. It's uh, and that's right. And 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 those th there's a million cases we could cover and we'll come back to why that one was important in another podcast. But uh, so let me finish. And and uh, because I think that's a, it's an example of of how people have tried to make a difference uh, in incremental ways, in ways that around the edges to save babies. And um, and 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 we'll come back to that because the Dobbs case that's up in uh, June is a strategic decision about viability and about how to limit uh, abortion. And there's lots of conversation to have around that. And we'll do that in another podcast because the Dobbs case, which is the one that's up before the Supreme Court and will be decided in the spring by most accounts. I, I guess they could re-argue it or do something, uh, but I doubt they will. I think they'll decide it. Uh, that, that's one we'll talk about next. All right, so let's wrap things up uh, with this. Anything before I wrap up, uh, Jordan, that you want to add? So I just want to mention again the book that you had mentioned, Abuse yes. of Discretion by Clark Forsyth. If you want to learn more, get a more in-depth history of Roe v. Wade, what it meant, and some of the cultural nuances that surrounded that decision, look up Abuse of Discretion. I think that you'll find it to be a really, really enlightening resource if you want to dig into this more and yeah. become an expert on some of this case law. It's written, you know, kind of from a legal perspective, yeah, but I it's gonna say. the sort of thing I think that most people can understand and, and you'll be shocked by what you read in it. The first half of it, I will say, Clark Forsyth writes it about the history. The second half is the mm -hmm. legal argument. So if you, right. if you, and in fact, you know, we might have Clark Forsyth on the podcast uh, at some point to talk about this because again, finishing this discussion of judicial decisions back to Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton and before and up to today, uh, to pretend that somehow these pronouncements are somehow with a small b biblical or canonical because they're made with black robed guys and gals up in Washington, D.C. in the Supreme Court doesn't uh, give uh, credence to what happens. And what we need to return to as a vision for our country is a constitution and founding values, not willy nilly uh, activists who are coming up with uh, trimester frameworks and, and viability frameworks and health about this. And then ultimately, if you're uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, everybody can choose what the universe is. Um, it's wild. So uh, Life Matters is our podcast. Thank you for tuning in. You can visit phyllisschlafly.com. Find out more about what we're doing. By the way, do me a favor and share this, uh, like this, pass it on to other people if you're uh, if you're uh, so inclined. And also give us feedback and let us know what you think about what we're doing, what you'd like to see covered. Because our podcast, Life Matters, our goal is to make sure to spend uh, time on what you need, what you understand. But also we're trying to rally the pro-life movement to fulfill its calling. It's Ed Martin and Jordan Henry. We'll talk to you again soon. Life Matters is a production of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles and Family Vision Media. To learn more, please visit phyllisschlafly.com and familyvisionmedia.org.